You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Hi, I'm Max's Island today. I've got Larissa Muir. So I know Larissa from the homelessness space, and in particular, her views on people with lived experience really playing a vital part to create the solutions in that space. That's something that is talked about a lot, but perhaps isn't happening at this point in time. There are people with lived experience having some influence, but not necessarily changing things at this moment. So Larissa, welcome to Max's Island. Thanks for having me. So Larissa, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself before we get into your story. Sure. Uh, I'm a 32-year-old female in Perth, living in Perth, with uh, three-year-old twins and a third on the way and at the point of struggling to get upstairs. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Your life is becoming preoccupied with that, no doubt. It is, definitely. Mm. So Larissa, on Max's Island... We talk about those times when you did something a little different, when you bucked the system, when you went against the grain, or just did something for yourself. So tell us your story. Sure. Uh, My story starts, I guess, understanding a little bit about my background. So both of my parents and my grandparents, they were born in Russia, and so my, my history is very much entrenched in the patriarchal family right. that is very unique to European families. And so, you know, you would do everything as a family. It's very close-knit, so no secrets are shared outside of the family. You know, it's like Fight Club. What <laughs> happens at Fight Club stays at, stays at Fight Club, so it's the same sort of concept. And so growing up as kids, we were always told by you know, our parents or our aunties and uncles, our predetermined destinies. So my sister was going to be a lawyer. My brother was going to be an architect. I was going to be a sports person. Um, but as I was growing up and, and finding my identity in the world, I really struggled to fit into that mold of being a sports person. I played quite competitive volleyball. And when I turned 18, fell out of love with it and enjoyed partying, going out with friends instead and trying to find out who I was. And there came a point in my, t- in, in my life where I was going to university, you know, I was at UWA doing a human movements course. I'm really hating it, hating turning up, hating 
going to class. Um, so I stopped going to class and I decided that I'd switch and that caused quite a lot of disruption. And when I first brought it forward to the family, you know, um, they tried to convince me to stay in it and instead we sort of negotiated and I ended up moving into a sports teaching course. So I did that for a semester and hated it and then I dropped university altogether and it wow. six months off and that was huge. And, and how caused... was that at home? Yeah, it caused many arguments. It caused many, you know, you're wasting your life, you're, you know, you're not doing anything and, and so I set off for six months just on a job search. I did... My first job that I did was I was a pixie photographer. I was one of those annoying people that would find you in Myers and ask you, you know, if you wanted to have a photo session done and hear all the packages you can buy. And there was this one opportunity where I was in Target in Inaloo and a lady in, a, in an electric wheelchair, I hadn't even noticed her and she was just hidden amongst the racks. And she yelled out at me going, hey, hey, what are you doing? You know, I want to know what's going on. And so really awkwardly, I sort of bent down at her level and was talking to her and did my spiel. And it was really awkward because I'd never really encountered anyone with a disability before. So for me, it was my first sort of meeting of anyone that was different from me. And, and afterwards, you know, once I'd done my spiel, she said, oh, no, that wouldn't be good for me because, you know, I'm in a wheelchair and who have I got to photograph? And I said, well, if you've got a pet or, you know, I'm trying to sell it. And, you know, she wasn't having any of it and just rolled away and, you know, and I thought, oh, wow, how rude. But they continued on. I left that job pretty quickly because it just wasn't for me, um, but learnt a lot from it. I then went on to do swimming teaching and, and that was interesting having, you know, four-year-olds clinging to you and you, you being the only thing in the pool that they found safety in and comfort in. And I did that for about two months and then called up one Sunday morning saying I can't do this anymore and like the swimming school pleading for me to come in and me just going no I just I will never be back there again <laughs> and just hanging up the phone and that was how I I left that. So what age were you by now? I was just before my 21st birthday and I'd just been applying for all of these random jobs and there was this one job that I applied for I didn't even know what I was applying for and I got an interview two weeks before my birthday, my 21st birthday, and I came into the office. Um, I had no idea what this organisation was and what they did. I spoke to the lady there. I gave all the right answers. She said, right, you've got the job. It's casual. You know, you start this Saturday. And I said, perfect. Walked out. Didn't even ask where to go, how much was the pay, what I'd be doing, just that I got a job and I'm starting Saturday. So I get a phone call back that afternoon going, you know, you didn't ask any of these questions. So your starting salary is $14.65 and uh, it's casual. Um, so we'll see you on Saturday. Just meet at this big blue bus on Francis Street in Northbridge. And, um, you know, you'll just meet the staff there and they'll tell you what you need to do. So Did I, you know the name of the organisation? Uh, I knew it. It was Uniting Care Crossroads at the time. Right. Uh, I didn't know what they did, though. Right. I had no idea. And so I rocked up and there was this lady, Terry. She introduced herself to me. She introduced me to all of the people that were there and I'd come to realise it was you know, an outing for people with disabilities. Um, she took me under her wing, introduced me to everyone, uh, introduced me to the staff, 
uh, the blue, big blue bus came, we got on the bus, we sat together and I thought, oh, this is okay, I can do this, this is, you know, it's fine. And then we got to Rockingham Foreshore and we started to get everything out and I was getting Terry to help me and I was with all the other staff members and all of a sudden one of the staff members piped up and said, Terry, you're not supposed to be here, you're not a staff member and got Terry to go back to where all the other people with disabilities were. And so for me, that was um, such a, a significant moment because up until that point, I'd seen no difference with Terry. I just thought she was a staff member, a volunteer, you know, we were there, we were equal peers. And in that one moment, um, she had been brought to be beneath me because she was someone that had had a disability. Wow. And, and for me, that moment just sort of stuck and resonated because I just thought, you know, without even knowing, you know, I acted with her like she was just everybody else. There was no difference to us. We had conversations, we talked about our lives, we talked about boys, going out. And it was as soon as someone had pointed out that she should be with everyone else, that this is just for staff members, it really got me thinking about, okay, so what is my role here? And what can I do? So not only had I disrupted the norm in terms of, you know, choosing a job that wasn't what was predetermined by my family, but I was also in this role that, you know, was really challenging how I viewed the world and how the world was already set up and my choice as to whether I would follow the status quo or do something different. So that all in day one? All in day one. Wow. All in day one. What happened day two? Day two. <laughs> day two, um, I ended up, rather than being out in the community on the big blue bus, I was in, um, I was, I was in the, the Bagot Road where they ran all of, their, all of their groups of people with disabilities. And so for this, like the, the people that were coming there were a bit older, so they're in their 60s and... You know, and I still had the same sense of going in there, not expecting, you know, to know anything and um, just letting the guys lead me. But I had this other situation that came up where um, I wanted to take some of the guys to the library because they wanted to get new books. And I was told no because there was an issue about having people with disability in the library and taking them there and, you know, what if they caused the scene and what if they did this and what if, you know, they ripped the books? And I said, but what if they didn't? Yeah. Um, and that really struck a chord with the staff. They actually didn't like me. <laughs> what about the clients? The clients loved me. <laughs> the clients loved me because I would let them have six sugar rains, um, whereas the other staff members would only let them have one. I would let them make their own cups of tea, whereas the other staff members would you know, do it for them. And it was just for this organisation, and probably for many community services 10 years ago, it was just the norm, you know, we're paid crazy. to be staff members. It's only 10 years ago. Yeah, 10 years ago. Phenomenal. And it's and I think it was just what it was back in the day, that, you know, we're here as staff members, we need, we're being paid, we need to do this stuff for you. And I, and I can remember having just arguments with people, you know, that... These guys live independently at home. They make their own cups of tea. They make their own dinners. They, they survive every single day. Yet when they come here, they can't go past this one line in the kitchen that separates the kitchen and the living room. And, and for me, I could never understand that. 
so I was constantly being brought into the director's room and being told off and, um, you know, being told that I was putting people at risk and I needed to settle down and, um, and three months of this, I, for whatever reason, um, in the other jobs where I was told to settle down, um, I just left because I just didn't have the fight. But for whatever reason, I stuck in and I actually went to the director's office one day and I said, this is, this is what I want to do. I want to work within community services. And at the time, it was, I want to work with people with disabilities. What can I do to further my studies? I want to further my knowledge. And so then I started a social sciences degree in Edith Cowan, majoring in disabilities at the time. Yeah. So you've made a big change. Mm. This is not what was planned for you. Yeah. How did that go down? My, I think my dad was probably a little bit shocked because he didn't understand it. You know, disability wasn't something that was well known, you know, within our family. My mum was just pleased that I had a job and that I was going back to uni. So for her, she, she was just pleased that I was back going to uni. That was her one thing she wanted her, her kids to all go to uni. So um, I, I think it was mixed. It was mixed because there wasn't enough understanding. Mm. Um, but I've been able to, over 10 years, being able to show them uh, the difference. So I even had, in my second year there, I invited my mum to come along for afternoon tea and she brought a cake for one of the participants' birthdays and she sat down and had a cake and, and brought a card. And then, you know, everyone loved her. They, they just kept on asking about her and saying, you tell your mum that it's my birthday next week and I want a cake and I want a card. <laughs> And mum would come. Um, and so, you know, I had, I had these opportunities where I was able to change, you know, their perceptions on the work that I was doing. Fantastic. And get their understanding as to why this was so important, that it wasn't just about a job, that it was really about being able to pave a way for people to be more than just their label. And I think that, for me, is, is the biggest change, you know. So not only did I have to fight, you know, you know my fear of um, disappointing my family, but there was also this other fight that I was not really conscious that I was doing at the time, but just fighting for people to be visible as people. So did you have challenges with this approach and this attitude to letting people be people and, and achieving their own independence during your studies as well? Was, what was the academic uh, rigor like and yeah. was it flexible enough to satisfy your progressive views it took me 10 years to, to finish my degree <laughs> or not not quite 10 years it was, it was less than 10 years but it took me longer than I needed to and I think because what was being taught at, at the university at the time was very basic you know it was it was on sociology and we did do classes on you know inclusion and how did we how could we adapt you know the supports that we provide but there wasn't that that forward thinking in terms of you know really understanding what inclusion is and even now it's it's still a learning curve it's still you know for me i like i understand inclusion as everyone being together and that there's no separation and that whoever wants to be a part of it but for whatever reason can't we find a way as a collective to make them be a part of it. So for me, that's that's my simplest way of, of um, talking about inclusion. But 
it wasn't the norm. You know, we would say that we have an inclusive services and we go out into the community, but all that meant was that as a group of people with disabilities, we would go to the movies together with paid supports. So being able to move from that spot to just people going out to the movies, I think we're still a fair way away from that. Yeah, but sure. getting there slowly. So Larissa, how long were you in the disability space for? Uh, so I was in the disability space from 2009 until 2012 and then I was able to take on an opportunity to move across to be a team leader of youth services which oversaw uh, young people, young LGBTI people in Bunbury as well as a young mums group in Perth. And so was that some of the studies that you'd done was in youth work? No. So the only experience <laughs> I had was really just being a young person and when I started in that role, it was, it really took me back to when I first started within disability, uh, because even within that youth space, the the staff that were working within that space were really entrenched in, these are young people, they need guidance, they need structure, they need us to tell them what they should be doing. And especially in, in the young mums group, I was confronted with this. And, and for me, the argument was, well, these are young women that are raising children now, you know, they're not young, they're not kids anymore. And we've got to understand that they've got someone else that they have to look after. So we really should be guided by what they need and what they want. And it shouldn't be enough for us to just get them through doing distance education and doing four units over two years, because that doesn't get them anywhere. That doesn't give them a completed year 12 certificate. Um, it really doesn't give them options or choices in terms of what they should be doing next. And so I, I found it really hard to to work in that space against some pretty strong-willed women <laughs> um, who, who were really stuck in their ways. And it was a program that um, had been operating for 27 years with no change. Wow. So this is another situation where you've appreciated the value of your clients, the participants in the programs, to, for them to have great input in shaping the outcomes, yep. shaping the solutions that work best for them. Again, this is quite different to a patriarchal Eastern European upbringing. Yeah. Very different. Very different. So why do you think you've got this innate sense that people can or people should be part of their own solution, part of a process to improve their situation? I don't know where it comes from, but... I've always, I've always believed that, you know, I, I'm not the expert on, you know, people with disabilities. The only expert is that, that individual that has the disability. And the same with, you know, young mums or young kids that, you know, are coming out for the first time and identifying as LGBTI or um, even people that are homeless, you know, or people that are struggling to connect in community. I, I'm not the expert on, on what who these people are and how they should be, really they are. And so when I have someone that says to me that they can't fit in with the status quo of a service and actually it would be better if rather than having a young mum centre where they all have to go to and catch two buses to get there, it would be easier for them to have a homework tutor coming to their house once a week for three hours, then I want to explore that because they know the solution already. And, and I think in a world where and especially in community services where I believe we've sort of always 
been there as the as the superhero with you know the cape on and, and trying to solve things for people we don't really stop to ask them the question you know what do you actually need you know if you could have no constraints if you could have one solution that you know would work you know i think we would have a very different service model i think yeah do you, do you see that now that you're and you've just introduced that you've um, had some experience in the homelessness yeah. space and you're currently working around that that area at the moment and you know we're doing this interview located in the heart of um, Northbridge where mm-hmm. uh, a lot of services are, are delivered in a, in, a, in a way that they've been delivered for some time but also a lot of innovative new new things are being delivered mm-hmm. so what's your experience there do you think that there are opportunities to create solutions definitely definitely and and I think once we as service providers and the people that hold the power with funding contracts and and with the resources I think once we let go of needing to you know meet KPIs and meet contracts and actually just meet the needs of the people we get the better outcomes how can that change when most of the money to fund these activities comes from government mm. and government are asking for a KPI measurements, averaged measurements across the cohort of people. Very difficult to provide that individual outcomes based when you're having to report on a standard KPI. Mm. I think it's understanding what that KPI entails because we can get KPIs from people's stories we can we can get you know the individual approaches from people's stories and we are moving into an individualized funding model we've seen it in disability that we've been on that trajectory for the past 10 years and with NDIS we are in that individualized space you know I believe that out of home care services are heading towards individualized supports it won't be far long before justice services are on an individualised framework. And so then the KPI becomes about that individual. And so I think for us as, as service workers and or social you know, service workers and, and organisations, we need to look at that and to understand, well, how do we still meet the requirements of the KPI, but how do we do it in a way that it's about the individual? How do we get them along for the, for the journey as well? And it starts by listening. It starts from yeah. understanding who they are and what they need. So that would require a, an incredible amount of trust from the funders to evolve individual funding mm. to people who are homeless, mm-hmm. experiencing homeless or um, are at a uh, position in their, in their life where they're struggling to actually know what their next step is, mm. what their next uh, outcome is, is mm. going to be. So. That's a big challenge, not only for service delivery organisations to be able to cope with that change of funding, yeah. but also government, and they're accountable to electors, to provide this um, individualised funding in an area that is possibly a little more controversial than, say, disability. Mm. But I think it goes back to that question of why not. Yeah. You know, We've been doing the same stuff over and over again, every three years, we churn over the same sort of idea, but it's just that little bit different, you know. And so the question, I guess, is really, well, 
what's stopping us from trying for the next three years to do something different if we're still seeing the same the same results and in the homelessness space actually numbers are rising then what's the harm in trying something different so what's something that you've experienced recently that is a little bit different that is trying to break the mold within the, the homelessness space yeah definitely um, during homelessness week um, the organization that i work for did the 24 hours a day support and and that had huge results um, what sort of results so what it allowed was for people to to physically ground themselves so over a three uh, over the seven days um, you know one of the stories that came through that I was really moved by was that a guy was able to finally sleep you know so on the streets he would take drugs to stay awake he was able to go into this safe space safe enough to sleep after the third day he asked staff to then support him for a referral to Syrian house to get into um, into some rehabilitation supports and I think that's the difference, that we're providing a space for people to find their own feet and then ask for the supports that they need. And this approach is just so different to how we usually do things because we have set models, we have set programs that say, you know, if you tick all these boxes, you qualify for X number of supports. Whereas this was, come as you are, we're here to listen, we're here to let you guide us. And from that, you know, we had a really amazing result as an organisation. So do you see that forming the new models for the future? You know, you're hopeful that you'll get additional funding to be able to do that? Yeah, possibly. You know, I think, I think it's just about being courageous and, and giving things a go. And if we're listening to the people that need the supports, we're on a better trajectory than not because we're, we're actually listening to what they need. And I think it's the same, so in a new area that I'm working in where I'm really focusing on how do we fill the cracks that NDIS is going to leave once people you know, don't have the funding that they need to connect into community, I'm really listening to, to those people and creating opportunities for them to connect in a way that's low cost, that's not going to break their new start budget, um, but where they feel that they're an active citizen, that they're an active group member. They're not coming there as a participant, they're not coming there you know, as in a token way, they're coming there as a community member and they feel included and they feel that for such a long time that they've been um, the person that's always been helped and at the moment they've got opportunities where they can help others and that's really seen some huge results where mental health and anxiety has gone down, people's scratchings have reduced, their confidence have increased and they're just their their voices are getting louder. They want to do more. They want to engage more. And so I think you know the power of listening to people that we're here to support. You know, once you start, you can't stop. You have to continue, um, and being able to engage. And I think that's where eventually we're going to get to a point where, rather than having organisations that will run the services and run the supports, we're actually going to just have groups of community members that will just form community action groups. And they'll support one another and bring in the resources and really focus on every person being supported rather than needing service organisations to come in and save the day. So you used the word there was about being courageous. Mm. So you were very courageous to change your path when you were in your late teens, early 20s. Yeah. And stumble into the disability space and realise 
that that was the space for you and the social services area. People have been courageous in trying new things in the homelessness space and I think it's important that perhaps governments start to be a little more courageous in the way that they spend their money and that requires the general community to understand that there, we all need to be courageous to, to solve these problems and as you rightly pointed out, homelessness is actually increasing yet mm -hmm. we're putting more and more attention onto it. So perhaps things do need to change and we all need to be a bit courageous. So Larissa... Thanks for being courageous with us today on Max's Island. No and just before we go, is there something you'd like to, to plug with the work that you're doing or something that you see in the future might be something that you can highlight that people can look out for? Yeah, definitely. So uh, I'm part of a service area called Inclusive Communities and our whole focus is on being able to create opportunities for people in local communities to connect. So it could be over a shared love of cooking, we've got a poetry group running. Um, and so I just urge people that if you've ever wanted to go out there and to do some volunteering, consider it just to be a community member and come go along to, you know, the, the community groups that get set up um, because you just being there and participating as a community member does just as much impact as coming in and washing dis dishes as a volunteer. So, yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks for being part of Max's Island community. No worries. Thank you. We spoke on the bus on the way home from work. He was lost in the details of life. Each day was a blur. Oh, work and no play. And how, how it had turned out this way He told me his plan, a short-term escape Five weeks on the Bibbulmin track Go it alone, no one to blame If he finished or fell by the way
every sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the sky. Completely alone, no emails or phone and nothing. 